On peut difficilement être heureux si on sait que notre avenir n'est pas assuré. Et aujourd'hui, bah notre avenir n'est pas assuré. Notre civilisation menace de s'effondrer et d'entraîner avec elle le reste du monde. Try to change them yeah. the whole time, and even on my end, like it's kind of shitty of me to like constantly trying to change somebody if they don't want to change for themselves. Because yeah. like nobody wants to hear that. Like <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, like you said though, when you come into it, we've been trained to suffer in a sense because like almost like shit rolling downhill where like your parents like I suffer, you suffer, or whoever. Like this is like the way the design is almost. But that's how we're told that life is. Yeah, suffering is. A natural thing or like life know. is pain guys <laughs> all types of relationships it was like all they were all um it never was just flowing it was always like a force and yeah. always something like real dramatic happening yeah. at all times um you know and people shouldn't have to like yell all the time yeah point across yeah like, um when it flows together it just flows together and then that's the thing and then people know people always know when it's not working because it feels like it's not working that's why you have to feel like you have to make it work yeah definitely. <laughs> so then it's just causing like more of a discord in yourself and then there's only so much you can do and then people run in circles like that all day long they keep it going yeah we yeah we feel the resistance <laughs> we don't we can act like we don't feel them all anymore for thousands of years duality in this universe has been like a war a bitter war between good and evil and each side has been unwilling to recognize itself in the other. Chances are, if you are watching this video, you identify yourself as being part of the side which we call good. Now if you look over the centuries at the thousands of texts from various cultures about this war between good and evil, the message that has been continually sent to you is that this war must continue. It is a battle about which side you're going to step on which side you're going to fight. You've been encouraged to fight the side that is evil. You've been encouraged to fight what you see as bad. The approach has been to separate oneself and protect oneself from the bad. All the focus is placed on how to be good, 
If you read many of these old scripts, like the Bible, which were translated through the limited understanding of the human mind at that time, it paints the picture that there must be a power struggle between good and evil. It tells you how to be on one side by separating yourself from the other. It tells you how to defeat the other. This approach never worked to restore us to a state of wholeness. All this ever did was to make matters worse. In fact, all that happened now is that we could justify everything we did under the guise of goodness. Now we had a justification for war. Now we had a justification for genocide. Now we had a justification for stealing things. Now we had a justification for rape. We had a justification for anything as long as we labeled it bad. When embodiments of the divine, such as Buddha or Jesus Christ, came down to the earth, they did not teach this war. What they taught was love, the exact opposite. But what does it mean to love? To love is to take something as thyself, to pull it closer to yourself, to see it as a part of yourself, to no longer exclude it from you. This naturally leads you into compassion and kindness towards the thing you love and towards meeting the needs of that thing. But they did not teach you to do this selectively. Now those of you who are familiar with Christianity understand that Jesus is famous for his loving and caretaking of the lepers within society, a group that was believed to be bad. He did not teach to love things conditionally. His teaching, which was wonderfully played out through this concept of his caretaking of the lepers, was that there are no exceptions, because there aren't. When it comes to love, there are no exceptions whatsoever. What he was teaching was to love the things especially that you push away from yourself. The Buddha recognized his adversary, Mara, as himself. He saw him as equally responsible for his own enlightenment, and he did not teach to cast him out or defeat him so as to separate from him. He taught his disciples the opposite, to metaphorically invite their own Mara in for tea. We have made love, which is to take something as part of yourself, conditioned upon something being good, which is the original perpetration that was made against us on behalf of the society that we were born into. We were born in a state of wholeness. We were taught by the people we came to that aspects of us were not lovable, were not acceptable, and were to be excluded from our being, and so we fragmented ourselves. We didn't take those things as part of ourself, and that was the very first action of self-hate instead of self-love. Like a puzzle that is unwilling to allow certain puzzle pieces of ours to be included in the picture of us, we have let ourselves be fragmented and perpetrated and perpetuated that fragmentation over the last thousands upon thousands of years. We have never succeeded as a race at doing the one thing that will dissolve that which we call evil, which is loving it. This morning I listened to a sermon that was given by a reborn Christian minister and I cried. I cried of sorrow because I couldn't help but cry. Why? Because when he said the words, cast out the demons and send them to hell, he was speaking about himself. The highest truth of this universe is the truth of oneness. There is nothing that is not God. All beings in existence are part of that oneness. Just as illusion and truth are both part of what is real, 
Demons and angels are both part of God. They are a fragmentation, a division within source consciousness, a fragmentation within the mind of God. They are both God's children, so to speak. The universe, that which we call God, is trying to call us back to itself. It is calling us back to a state of oneness. And for thousands of years, it has been sending mercenaries, representations of itself, to call us back home. And what happens when people listen to the words of these mercenaries is that they distort them and twist them through the filter of their own culturally ingrained resistance. Coming back to oneness, the ultimate state of love, requires a drastically different approach. We can no longer take the approach of siding with good against evil, of using angels to get rid of demons, of embracing divinity to get rid of our humanness, of siding with Christ against the devil. This approach has got to stop. On the personal level, we have got to take a different approach relative to ourselves. When we look within us at the things that we do not like about us, we cannot keep trying to separate ourselves from it, get rid of the things we don't like about ourselves, get rid of the things that we think are unacceptable, so that we can purely side with the things in us that we see as good, that we judge as good, that we deem acceptable. This is a fragmentation within us, and we will never achieve a state of wholeness and integration within ourselves. If we don't do this, we have to love those things we don't want. By creating this kind of integration, we will create it within this universe. Why? Because this universe is a mirror of us. We are a microcosm in the macrocosm. We are a fractal of God. For the universe to become one, we must become one. We will do that by integrating. We will integrate by loving the aspects of us that we do not currently love by pulling close and seeing ourselves in the aspects of us that we want to push away. This is the true teaching of Christ. What I am telling you is that the time has come for unconditional love. Unconditional love must be practiced towards the things that we want to push away from ourselves the very most. Integration is the true mission of God. It is the desire that exists within the mind and the heart of God. If you must fit this in with your attachment to being good, then you can see it in this way. The ultimate form of goodness is goodness that can recognize goodness in evil, goodness that can love evil, goodness that can recognize itself in evil, and first and foremost, goodness that is willing to embrace evil as itself. To love something is to include it as yourself. What we know about God is that God is the vibration of love. That is the closest understanding we can come to understanding what God is. And that means that God does not exclude anything from itself, no exceptions, including that which we call evil. We are being called to end this war between good and evil within the world and within this universe at large by integrating good and evil. The truth is, we are beyond polarity. We are beyond the polarity of good and evil. The truth is that we are both and we are neither. Love is the highest truth of all. And love is no different than the truth of oneness. The time has come to put it into practice. You're talking about innocence or inner sense. What I found in my life, in general, when it comes to innocence, is that 
that is what makes a relationship with anything really a lovely relationship whether it's a person or an activity whatever the case may be when the innocence is there it's something that we cherish keeps the relationship uh, a relationship of love regardless like I'm just saying that the, the addiction to the innocence is is what they play on almost I don't even know if we can call it an addiction or whatever it's just that I playing football as a kid in in the schoolyard whatever you know you're like 10 years old and there's innocence of purity there you know and you're just running and moving around and your body is it's in a state where it's just in motion it's not quantified it's not like I'm doing this for this I'm just doing it because I'm doing this and I'm living right now and my body's in this rhythm right now and that's when time that's when time flies because time is not a fact time is time's all perception so that's why as a kid you know the day will just go by so fast because you've been you've been void of time in a sense and just living in your in your moment so like that's the innocence that we experience in those moments it's kind of what we chase what I know I have chased you think that once the blood gets involved like you know money money being blood or energy once that gets involved that it somehow could stay innocent but there's, there's no way there's really no way we're all giving up our blood sweat and tears to this sacrifice I'm just saying the innocence in any relationship when it's gone the relationship is done it's just it has to be it has to be refound where that relationship needs to expire you need it needs to die and then resurrect it another way really when it comes to um, when it comes to innocence it's something that should be cherished it's really the foundation of uh, of love really it's something that you're doing without seeking reciprocity you're just living in this in this moment if you're being you know, you're just being innocent you just you know and that, that's what's used against us in many of these uh, vehicles in life whether it's the institution of marriage or any job in general that they're saying like, do what you love you know but you just gotta know that you don't necessarily doesn't have to be the way that it's been painted up to you as far as whatever you're doing to maintain this form of this thing that makes you in love with life. You do it on your own accord in your own way. I know they say truth is relative, and in a sense it can be if we evaluate it like I'm 6'4, six, 6'5. Six, you may not be that. So that relative truth is different. But when it comes to the concept of truth, I don't really feel as though it's an intellectual concept. I feel like it's more so an emotional, vibrational communication to like yourself or soul so when we're not truthful to our emotions we're just bound for an emotional implosion and as far as our stages and growth in life we go we have many emotional wounds when we go through especially in the west when we go through these institutions like school and religion different different wounds occur at different points in our growth and it's at critical moments in different societies, you know, they might praise different points in growth for people, but really for us in our society, it's just a time when we are in, we're all being taught the same way. We're being conditioned 
indoctrinated the same way when we all learn differently we're all different beings and we're all being taught the same way in these institutions pretty much for the most part and it it just it just causes anything different from the so-called norm which is pretty much sick if you evaluate the world as a whole or especially the west because most people are sick and they say you can't die from a broken heart but it's the most of us are dying from broken hearts as far as heart disease and different things like that so so as far as emotions and the beginning of disease you know starting at an emotional level yeah you can die from a broken heart <laughs> so yeah emotions and emotional implosion is probably the number one problem in the world in general that has that has us in the state we're in because we're born on this battlefield pretty much so through our stages in growth we have basically inner children everyone says inner child but if we look at inner children each phase being a child we can look at how we make our decisions today you know if you're angry or sad you should maybe ask yourself how old are you feeling in that moment are you acting as the 12 year old you or the 15 year old you and the same thing goes for maybe if you're picking partners you might be picking partners from the 16 year old you perspective because of the wounds that you've suffered along the way and then in this reverse society or culture culture where up is down and down is up and left is right or whatever everything is pretty much anything um, you basically have people having familiarity with the, the dysfunction so we let the walls down for people that will further damage us it's just the cycle of the lack of knowledge of self and a bit of self-hatred or it's really stemming from not truly knowing ourselves and not being true to our emotions so in different phases we have these wounds and you know they will always probably be a tender spot for most people but um, we can heal them and a lot of it has to do with breath work and just forgiving yourself in that sense because we all regard ourselves by what we do not that we are say I am a doctor I am a athlete or whatever but that's not what you are that's what you do so you are confusing what you are with what you do so if you have lied or done things you you just will carry that ashamedness for however long you carry it because you feel that what you do is what you are even though you can change what you do as far as what you are is infinite so it's very difficult to change that I mean at some level I guess people have we found a way to put limitations on an infinite universe I guess or limitations on ourselves as infinite beings so um, yeah pretty much we attract environments and situations that continue to gouge these wounds and bring rip them open even more because we created a comfort level with the depression and the sadness and the dysfunction we don't know the other side of the coin and, and you, you can't steal second base with your foot on first so we, we have this comfort level with that so we stay stuck on stupid because we know it we might not necessarily truly wholeheartedly know peace so scheming for understanding made myself blind trying to make people see you can't teach consciousness it's a uh, one of those things like anything where you can only help those that want to help themselves so 
a one hand wash the other type of situation. So it'll never be a forced thing that uh, that will bring about peace or will bring about, you know peace is prosperity. So as far as however you can't really separate them. <clears throat> so as far as this uh, scheming for understanding, editing yourself so that you can uh, supposedly teach somebody something that you think that they need to know. Again, it's, that comes down to you having this idea of knowing, or this idea of control. <clears throat> Whenever you have a problem with control, it means you have a problem with the design. So, you need to look at the design from a different angle, because there's never a problem with the design, because it's perfect. I mean, it's, it's always a, it's a perfect balancing act. Even the imbalance of the world shows the extreme forms of balance. So it's always that. So the, whenever you edit or binge yourself, reverse psychology, tough love, whatever, what have you, you're stepping away from yourself. You're creating a buffer from yourself to try to make somebody know something that you think they should know. A gorilla doesn't have to ask another gorilla another question or try to manipulate them like that. They know that everything knows and they know that all is all. Everything is everything. So, but that puts you, it's one of them things that puts you in that sunken place. As far as the sunken place, I mean like the buffer between you and your emotions or the buffer between you and you or you and your core or whatever. Like the things that, I guess you could say that the, the sunken place is the concept of you, it's, it's, which is is distant from the observer, which is the true you, the true will and uh, the core you that is uh, manifesting everything else. Cause the more you, the deeper you go inside your supposed self, because there is no self, but this concept of self, the deeper you go into yourself is the sunken place. And then that's where you're observing the, the actual um, course. Because you're, you're living in this movie or this idea of self instead of, you know, observing the course. It's the, the true course. It's not something that, you know, that has to be thought about or anything like that. You're you're watching that because you, it's from a distant, detached point because you're stuck in the idea and staying in the laws of being this concept. So that puts you in the sunken place. That puts you in that distance from your emotions. That puts you in that distance from the actual movie or the actual course, like your, your true dream. So you're observing your life from a passenger position from the sunken place. And like a lot of that has to do with feeling like there should be something done as there's imperfection in the world or you know that something's wrong like the imperfections aren't perfections in a sense so like whenever you want to tamper you know life just tampers with you and then you get a more and more of a buffer created between you and uh and you the true you the the infinite observer <clears throat> so basically it's just it's emotional padding like i always say it's emotional insulation that that's created that puts you in that sunken place and like when you go to that place coming back from it, it you you're going you it, it's always painful because you're going back to the the things that brought ab about you returning to it because you go to it as a forms of uh coping with the process you feel like something is is incorrect or you don't or is something you know is uh wrong or whatever so you go to this place you go inside this concept of you to buffer you from the actual you that is observing and, and witnessing and manifesting or whatever you want to look at that. So you go to that place to out of out of fear to to stay in the concept instead of stay in the actual movie or stay in the actual course. So 
as far as like parallel lives or whatever, people really get lost in in the ideas or the hallucinations, the daydreams, and you know they take that into REM sleep and all that. And you know, and time is not something that is involved in this really. You know, time in a lot of it has to do with the pain. The more the more pain-filled your life is, the the more you're going to be worried about time in general anyway. So it's more it's more so alignment. You know. Uh, just cycles of alignment and, and just knowing where the light is and where the darkness is you know within you and around you and and then that's that's more so what timing is and being on time but that's another topic I just want to say as far as like the sunken place and coming back from it because you ran to it out of fear to cope then you come back from it and you you're going it's a it's you're thinking your way back into the course instead of you know instead of being you know you're like you know you're human thinking or a human thinker or whatever instead of a human being or a human doer or whatever you're human instead of just being now you're thinking you're trying to think your way through life and there's, there's just there's just no way that you can you just, it's exhausting it's exhausting to try to think your way through life through that so but the course continues to repeat and then you continually create circumstances that bring about that same pain so that you can get reminded of the trauma so that you can get back on course so it could just to remind you what you don't need with the pain is more so there for like holding on to things you don't need and that you know the pain from that is, is just your signal it's just your alarm pretty much so um, really the editing for others for others sake for your own sake like you're suppressing yourself for your own emotional insulation and then you're suppressing for I guess uh, to protect other people from their emotions all that editing process just holds everybody back and then you know everything just stays miserable but if you give back if you just you know accept the breath then you can start to unwind that but a lot of people they think something so subtle has nothing to do with that but the breath regulates the thought and the thought has a lot to do with everything in an air age because i mean you gotta think about it like the mind is dragging the body there's no separation but it's two sides of one coin. The body is the mind in 3D, but the mind is more so dragging the body. Like you think something, then you do it. Whether you think it visually or auditorily, it's, it's like I'm getting up to go and sit to go sit over here and change my seat. Like, and the body is dragged by the thought or whatever, by the inspiration from that idea. It's coming from you know a visual or auditory thought or something something received in a, in a subtle way, you know, it's, it's, it's mental or uh, metaphysical or for physical, however you want to look at it. So the body's being dragged. That's how you see people that look good for periods of time and then all, all of a sudden they just look terrible because that, the body caught up with the mind. So, and you know, for me it's, it's just crazy once you, uh, once you go to and fro to something place, like it's, it's wild, man. <clears throat> you know, because once you know better, you figured you do better, but you just kind of, it's levels to the sick. So you still go through your uprooting and just in a different, more graceful way. You know, you're just dropping and needing less and needing less. Then you can give more, then you can receive more. And your cup is, is getting smaller, so it's big for you, which you're receiving. But maybe to the world it's not big. But your cup has changed because your perception has changed and you know that needing less is 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 having more so that is that that's that's where you need to be comfortable with yourself and then if you begin to bend there to try to 
deal with other people's perceptions, then you start to slip into the sunken place and it's a slippery slope. And, um, it, you know, you, up, you know, it just got better for me personally. I got better at uprooting. I got more and more graceful at it, but it's always a period where you know that you, you know, you reach an a precipice where you have to, you know, you know, shit or get off the pot really. So it's like, where are you manifesting from? Where are you centralizing your blood? And it's really just allowing yourself to, to fill those holes instead of continually seeking external filling. Because there's no way that that can sustain. There's no way that that can keep up. It's just, it's just band-aids, you know, people come and stick in temporarily, you know what I mean, together like band-aids. So like, you know, you heal, then you release. You heal, then you release. But people want to keep hurting themselves so they can keep going through that process because they're comfortable with that process and they like to take the step back to take the step forward to feel as though they've taken a step forward it's that illusory step forward but just staying at zero then the world is yours you don't own anything nothing owns you anyway so the people that have accepted areas of themselves that you have yet to accept in yourself those are the folks that are like medicine to you and you can get addicted to medicine so because everything is a chemical reality and again that is what healing that's how people heal you you know when they have accepted those areas of you then you use them as a catalyst to remind yourself that to be that way to accept yourself like that that's that's in you that's within you so then you uh are more complete and the more complete you are the more you would say like you love yourself or whatever you want to call that so it always just comes down to getting what you give and if you unconsciously give to things then you're going to get unconscious returns on your energy and you have to admit what you're giving a lot of people just don't admit what they're giving and they have to change the charge but the only way to change the charge of energy that they're giving off is to admit what they give off they have to admit like I feel like I'm 8 years old or I feel like I'm 12 years old I'm in my emotions or I'm, I really love this person no matter what they do or I really I really hate this person or I hate this thing or I hate this area of me whatever you are feeling whatever you are um, emitting you have to admit it so that you can change the charge but if you like you can't be concerned with what you think about what you feel as much as what you feel you feel what you feel and your concepts of that are really illusory you know it's just like if you go through an event and then you play it back in your head like your imagination recreating that event is not real that is just a a, a, a figment that you've created and then it triggers your body to continually feel those feelings again and then you constantly reevaluate and then you stay stuck in that loop so you have to change the charge by admitting like look all right i feel hurt or i feel this is actually love that I'm suppressing and I don't want to feel it so I have to admit that that's the only way so you have to it's just your emotional IQ you know it's your subconscious suppression that's what that is really like how much do you suppress what you're actually feeling and so much has to do with you not accepting your feelings because it's not in alignment with your persona that you've created because that's another figment in your mind who you think you are or what you might be that whole thing like whatever is in alignment with that is who you think you should be so when the strife inside comes when you feel a way that isn't in alignment with your persona but you have to respect your core your true core values or your true essence whatever you want to call it like 
the actual you, the whole you, you know, except you and your entirety. So that's um that's how you can be medicine for other people. That's how you heal yourself and the world or heal the world. Same thing. There's no separation. So that's really about it, man. Forget what you think about what you feel. Just ask yourself what you feel. Where do you feel the pressure? This is my introduction to the book that I wrote called The Completion Process. I need you to bear with me because trying to summarize something I feel this passionate about is going to be quite the challenge for me. So stick with me if you can. This is much more than just a book. It's in fact a book that introduces a technique. A technique that I've decided to name the completion process because that's essentially what it does. When we experience trauma, we become fractured. But I want you to understand that trauma is more than just some horrific event you go through, like a car crash or war. Trauma is anything that you cannot find resolution with. When you can't find resolution with something, you can't move through it and make it a part of who you are about to become. So instead, one aspect of you stays frozen in time, and another aspect of you continues forward into your adult life. It has the capacity to help you get to the place you wanted to get to in your life, regardless of whether what you have suffered from is seriously complex trauma that you see at the hands of rape or war or incest, or trauma that we all go through. The trauma of birth, the trauma of being weaned, the trauma of losing a loved one. Any kind of trauma you can experience will find resolution through this process. The first part of this book will set you up to completely understand the process, why we do it in the way we do it, how trauma works, why you can't get over the things you can't get over, why your current life seems to be not working for you so well, even though you can't put your finger on exactly what it is that's making it not work. You're going to fully understand exactly what is happening to your life. The second part of this book, it introduces the actual process so you can use it and apply it to yourself. And you can start using this as a tool in your life on a daily basis. Whenever we become fractured due to trauma, we become reactive. In the world of healing, we call this a trigger. It means that you could pass a scent, and because that scent triggers a memory of something you experienced before, which you have negative associations with, it causes you to react out of fight-or-flight mode. That reactivity is what is giving rise to the wars you see today, the relationship problems. Healing, or shall we say integrating, this trauma allows us to no longer be in that reactive state. It allows us to stop hurting other people. It makes us go from a person who is fractured and fragmented to a person who is experiencing ourselves as whole. And you can only imagine what the world would look like if we all took that responsibility in our own lives. I designed and used this process on myself to heal from 13 years of acute ritual trauma. When I got away from my childhood situation, I was literally a shell of a human being. I was suffering from dissociative seizures, from multiple personalities. I had the full range of post-traumatic stress disorder, and it was complex PTSD, which involves developmental trauma. It used to be that people who had complex post-traumatic stress disorder were just going to live lives that were just so good. The attitude was like, okay, because there's actual damage that's been done to the development of this person, there's only so much we can do with that. And that never worked for me. I have managed to accomplish a kind of recovery 
which you don't see. People like me are so rare walking the planet after going through that kind of damage in a space of integration. And the reason I am in this space is because of this process. I want to personally thank you for taking your own healing into your hands by trying out this process. I want to thank you for taking responsibility for the way that you are fractured and for putting yourself back together again so that we can experience the reflection of that, which is a world that is in a state of happiness. And then, as if out of the blue, you're knocked back to square one. You're struggling again. You're dealing with all those petty issues again. Those things you thought you had already dealt with are back up in your face. Today I wanted to talk a little bit about my story because I've been making these videos about sustainable practices and the technologies I've implemented here at Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, but I have yet to tell much of my background story and how I ended up here. You might be wondering, how does this guy think he can tell me how to live more sustainably? What makes him think he can have a channel called Hardcore Sustainable? Well, it's a long story and I won't go into all the detail, but I've basically been trying to live as sustainably as possible since I started becoming aware of environmental problems in my late teens, many long years ago. I praise all those people who were deep in the rat race but rejected it far into their adult lives for a more fulfilling, more sustainable path. However, that was not my story. I was raised in middle-class suburbs and saw firsthand and participated in conspicuous consumption through my entire childhood. One of the first awarenesses that shattered my paradigm of the suburban American dream was learning that styrofoam never goes away. It just didn't seem logical in any way that people would create something that could end up in the environment and would never break down naturally. I was pretty naive. From then on, it was an endless awakening to all the fairy tales, to the man behind the curtain of the abundance of the American lifestyle. Despite my lack of exposure to much beyond the consumption-based, advertising-soaked message from the American media, I picked out the things that I connected with and somehow, through all the artificial stuff, built a connection with nature. I loved to watch nature shows on PBS and they brought me some awareness of the threats to wild animals and their habitats. I started gardening at the age of seven because I loved to see plants grow and get the produce of my hard work and knowledge of growing things. I studied environmental science in college and I've worked on a number of organic farms. I've worked in cooperative businesses and lived in cooperative houses for many years. So I know about cooperative alternatives to capitalism, their benefits and their drawbacks. Although I'm no expert, I have a familiarity with and interest in economics and the role it plays in human impact on the planet. Like it or hate it, economics is at its root just the way humans get what we need to survive. Well, that's what it should be, but often it's about getting what we don't need to survive. Over the years, these early interests have expanded and continued into my adult life and led me to living here at Dancing Rabbit Eco Village, where I can fully implement many of the ideas I've embraced over the last 25 years or so. I've been living this more sustainable life off-grid in a tiny house for over nine years now. I built my own house from local and reclaimed materials, I haven't owned a car for that entire time, instead sharing three or four vehicles with from 22 to 60 other people. I've used minimal fossil fuel directly and only in the form of propane for cooking, diesel fuel during the winter for our car co-op, and some for our tractor. I've gotten most of my water from rainwater catchment. I've heated my house almost entirely with waste wood. I've designed and installed off-grid power systems for many houses. I've grown a significant amount of my own food. 
I chose to move to Dancing Rabbit because, though I wanted to live sustainably, I didn't want to live in a noisy and dirty city, and I didn't want to live isolated in the country far from neighbors and community. I knew that in living here, I would have other like-minded people around to cooperate with in living more sustainably. I could get the benefits of a car, a truck, and a tractor without having to buy one. There are so many ways we cooperate here that people living separately in the country or in a city couldn't do. And one of the most significant reasons I wanted to live here is that I could have access to a lot of land for building and agriculture without having to single-handedly sh shell out money to buy something on my own. At Dancing Rabbit, none of us owns the land, yet we all own it together in a land trust that ensures the land will be kept sustainably in perpetuity. It's this cooperation with others that I think is DR's greatest asset. We're based on a village model, but we're much different from other villages in that we we're actively cooperating to get our needs met. Most villages these days are just conglomerations of individuals who happen to be living in the same area, but there's little interaction or cooperation between them. We cooperate to provide daily meals for each other. We cooperate to share bathroom and shower facilities so that each house doesn't have to have its own. We cooperate in providing power for ourselves with our microgrid that combines our house's power systems to provide solar and wind power for most village residents. This greatly reduces the need for batteries and individual components in each house. We have our own alternative currency, the ELMS system, through which most economic transactions in the village are made. We have just started a growers co-op to grow food on a larger scale so that we can more efficiently and successfully grow our own food. Many of us also buy organic food in bulk cooperatively to allow ourselves to afford a more sustainable diet. And all of these ways of cooperating are up to the individual's choice. You can choose to be a part of them or you can have your own everything. However, it really makes more sense to cooperate with others if you can. We're also cooperating to create something that's greater than the individuals here separately. If I were out in the middle of nowhere alone, I would be just one person. If I were a family, same thing, just one family. Here I'm a part of something bigger that's actively doing something about climate change, setting an example for others and providing them hope that it can be done. That people can live with much less fossil fuel and still have a fulfilling life. But I don't just want to live my way out in the wilderness where no one can see me, knowing I'm doing my part to change my little corner of the world. I want to teach other people about the potential to create a more sustainable and fulfilling lifestyle. That's why I'm posting these videos and showing others what I'm doing here. To understand why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them, you have to understand the way we live here. Dancing Rabbit Eco Village was formed on this land in 1997, and we have a goal to be a large village eventually. 
but we're different from other eco-villages. Although we have a similar goal of living sustainably, we've taken it a few steps further to make our sustainability more hardcore by having a set of ground rules or overarching covenants that everyone who lives here is required to follow. Our covenants state that Dancing Rabbit members will not use personal motorized vehicles or store them on Dancing Rabbit property. Fossil fuels will not be applied to powering vehicles space heating and cooling, refrigeration and heating domestic water. All gardening, landscaping, horticulture, silviculture and agriculture must be organic. Waste disposal systems have to reclaim organic and recyclable materials. Lumber used for construction must be either reused, reclaimed, locally harvested or certified as sustainably harvested. All electricity produced has to be from sustainable sources. Any electricity imported from off-site has to be balanced by exporting enough on-site sustainably generated electricity to offset the imported electricity. So when you hear me talking about not being able to use fossil fuel, that's why. Our land trust dictates in certain specific ways what we can and can't do on or to the land. We're always updating and clarifying our policies to make them more effective, practical, and adapted to new technologies. Since I came here, I've moved one tiny house over here from a neighboring farm and finished it, at first to live in and then to be a rental property. I built the passive solar straw bale house I currently live in. I've established and tended multiple gardens where I grow my own food. I've planted a vineyard with the intention of having a winery sometime in the future if I can actually be successful in growing grapes organically. I tend a hoop house and grow out-of-season vegetables so that DR members can have more local food for more of the year. I've planted perennial fruit trees and bushes around my yard to provide more local food. My yard is a great example of permaculture in action, as are many other people's yards here. Although cooperation is a great way to reduce costs, it's not my desire to live in poverty and squalor. I want to live richly but sustainably. Living sustainably doesn't mean sacrificing all the good things in life. It actually simplifies things in a lot of ways and puts them more in your control. You come to appreciate the simple pleasures more, and you don't need lots of stuff to make you happy. It does make the occasional luxury that much nicer, though, when you live simply and sustainably. Philosophically, I'm a realist. I believe in science. I don't think there's any supernatural force that's going to swoop down and save us no matter what we do. I believe we control our own fate and have to take responsibility for that. I believe science can give us the understanding of how we're impacting and how we can reduce our impact on the planet. But science is a double-edged sword. Untempered, it's largely responsible for propelling us towards the destruction of our planet and our entire way of life. It's given us the information we've used to endanger our world, but it also holds the key to saving it and to helping us evolve as a species. Understanding the world through evidence-based thinking shows us a universe that's amazing beyond our wildest imagination. Why make up supernatural forces that aren't there if there's scientific evidence for natural forces that actually exist, though they may not do exactly what we'd like them to do? Over the nine years I've been here, I've come to understand a bit of what works here and what doesn't, which technologies might be viable and which might not, what the limitations are of living without fossil fuel and getting my basic needs met and in creating a sustainable economy. Most Americans have no concept of what it would be like to live without fossil fuel, and they couldn't imagine doing it. In fact, a lot of them don't even know their lifestyle is entirely made possible by a finite resource, something their children might have to do without at some point. I can't tell you how many times we get visitors here who say, it's nice to know you live this way, but I could never do it. We still have the luxury of it being a choice, but it won't be a choice much longer. 
In just the time since I was born, over half the world's wildlife have disappeared as a result of their habitat being destroyed and taken over by humans. The world population has doubled, growing from 3.5 billion to about 7.4 billion humans, more living at one time on Earth than has lived in the entire history of humanity. And the U.S. population, which consumes more resources per capita than any other large country, has grown by over 120 million people. It's hard for us to see these changes and their true impact. If anything, though resources have dwindled, our society appears much more affluent than it was when I was a kid. Resource consumption per capita in the U.S. has grown dramatically in just a hundred years. And with each passing year, we become more dependent on technologies and resources that are not sustainable even into the near future. Living at Dancing Rabbit, you come to realize how diluted mainstream economists' hopes for the global economy are. How serious the need is for everyone to change the way they live drastically. Most economists believe that we can magically continue to grow our economy indefinitely. Yet much of our economic growth is fueled by population growth and by a false abundance of finite resources. The more people, the more consumers, and the more reason to extract resources from the earth. Our current rate of population growth is totally unsustainable. We have to stop population growth and dramatically reduce consumption, particularly in the world's richest countries if we're to survive. Not just because we're destroying the planet, but because it's deluded to think that our global economy is not approaching a brick wall at high speed. It's unlikely there are practical alternatives to fossil fuel that will sustain the economy and the population growth we've come to expect. The current population growth and rate of consumption can't be maintained without a continually increasing supply of energy. And that's an unlikely scenario, given that fossil fuel is a finite resource and given the limited options with any potential to replace it. We recently did an audit of our consumption habits at DR and found that with the systems we've implemented, we use 10% of the fossil fuel, 14% of the electricity, 19% of the water, and produce 13% of the landfill waste of the average American. The average American would need more than 14 Earths to supply them with resources, but here at DR, we need less than one Earth. And guess what? We only have one Earth. You don't have to wait forever for a corporate-controlled government to implement policies. You can simply change the way you live your life. You can implement these practices where you are to reduce your impact, or you can come join us at DR in creating a model for a more sustainable small village. Well, thanks for watching. I'd like to do some more videos like this, and I think next time I'm gonna talk about the economics of living here at Dancing Rabbit. There's a lot of things to consider when you can't use fossil fuel. Uh, most of the businesses that exist in our country uh, rely heavily on highly subsidized fossil fuel and the cheapness uh, and, and abundance of it or sort of uh, false abundance of fossil fuel in our culture. Um, so when you live here at Dancing Rabbit and you're trying to live without fossil fuel, you have a lot of handicaps when you're getting a business started or when you're trying to make money. So it's something that I think about a lot and we get a lot of questions from visitors and I've gotten some questions from viewers. Uh, so I think I'd like to make a video about that. Uh, okay, well, uh, don't forget to subscribe to my channel if you haven't done that yet and uh, share this video and give it a thumbs up if you liked it. And until next time. A few years ago, I also had sheep in here. There's a variety of sheep called uh, South Down Baby Doll Sheep. And this variety of sheep is small enough that uh, they can't reach the vines and so they don't get up and 
nibble on the vines, let the elk graze the grass. Look. And that would be my do ideal. Do I love it? Do I lust? Struggle of a hustle. The life of a bank. Death is no strange. I know I'm like his kid till he took a few friends from me. It all makes sense one day. Eventually, I guess so. Granny said it happened and it's meant to be just let go. But I can't just shit keep itching me like... Tuve que hace como 15 años con mi marido y yo que estuvimos buscando otra forma de vivir y llegamos a una ecovilla que acá en la provincia de Buenos Aires en Navarro y bueno nos integramos a ese proyecto que estaba en sus inicios ¿no? nos pareció que estaba bueno apoyar ese proyecto y ahí conocimos muchísima gente porque es un lugar donde pasa mucha gente porque dan cursos gente de todo el mundo este, pero bueno había cosas con las que no coincidíamos y finalmente nos fuimos pero aprendimos lo suficiente como para sentirnos que teníamos la experiencia como para iniciar nosotros un proyecto similar en otro lado y bueno, y junto con un grupo de personas que todos nos conocimos en ese lugar empezamos con este proyecto Las cabañitas que ustedes ven acá son carpas, originalmente carpas son este, tiendas de campaña de una empresa de telefonía que después cuando se privatizó al fabricante le quedaron estas carpas nosotros fuimos a comprar una lona para hacer una, extender una casa rodante que fue nuestra primera vivienda y nos propusieron esto y son de cáñamo son fantásticas entonces dijimos maravilloso las compramos muy baratas entonces bueno, cuatro palos ya tenías tu, tu carpa armada la carpa la acondicionamos con arcilla metida en, en medias. Se fue modelando la pared con las medias. Después esta parte de afuera, esta fue una de las primeras construcciones que hicimos cuando estábamos acá. Empezamos a poner cop, porque dijimos, bueno, ya que ten, estamos, le ponemos una, co una cocina, un baño. Entonces esta es la técnica de cop, que es la técnica de modelado directo. Exactamente lo que hace el hornero con el piquito, nosotros lo hacemos con la mano y después se, se mezclan, se pisan o con una máquina lo mezclamos y bueno, esta es la cobera la llamamos nosotros porque es donde preparamos el cop esa laguna que ven allá era un bajo natural donde iba el agua lo que nosotros hicimos fue profundizarla para sacar la tierra que necesitamos para la construcción y además nos ayudó un montón a drenar el terreno porque como es tan arcilloso el agua tiende a quedarse entonces bueno, como que se resume en esa laguna y esta zanja que viene para acá es la que trata las aguas grises o sea, las aguas de las piletas, de las duchas, del lavadero de, las, de estas dos casas, este lavadero y la orina también la mandamos a ese tratamiento de agua en realidad la orina no contamina y es un recurso Bueno, y la técnica usada acá es la técnica del COP, o sea, esto de modelado directo. Esto lo hicimos entre seis personas, modelamos toda la casa, es como hacer una gigantesca escultura. Exactamente así es como se hace. Entonces, bueno, mientras uno va construyendo, va, van apareciendo estas cosas, ¿no? En murales o, bueno, lo que le surge a cada uno y lo va plasmando. Huecos en las paredes, en fin. 
Lo que yo podría agregarte acá, y que es la, el diseño que se hizo en todas las construcciones, que se llama diseño bioclimático, la idea es aprovechar el sol para calefaccionar, no usar, eh, usar energía adicional y convencional lo menos posible. Entonces, está orientado al norte, las ventanas están orientadas al norte, si vos te fijás, esta está girada porque está al noreste. Esta es una estufa rusa. Estas fueron diseñadas para Siberia. Por supuesto son gigantes en Siberia, ¿no? Estas son chiquititas. Pero bueno, son estufas de alto rendimiento donde se aprovecha el calor del humo. Porque generalmente las chimeneas o las salamandras, todo el calor se va por el tubo. Por el... cambio acá. Es el aire que va recorriendo por montones de lugares y va cediendo ese calor al ambiente. Por eso se llama de alto rendimiento. Esto se calienta un montón. A la noche se termina la leña y esto sigue tirando calor hasta el mediodía del día siguiente. Entonces, por eso el espacio designado a la cocina es muy pequeño. Es por si, qué sé yo, te querés hacer un té o un día tenés ganas de quedarte a comer en tu casa. Este, pero por eso la cocina no es un lugar importante como es en casi todas las casas porque tenemos la, la cocina comunitaria, el comedor comunitario La idea es no hacer una casa sino hacer un hogar entonces cuando uno lo hace uno mismo esa sensación de, deja de ser de casa para pasar a ser hogar algo que es tuyo y eso es lo que me gusta transmitir yo en este lugar vivo y pienso seguir viviendo hasta mi último día de vida y lo que más me gusta es eh, la paz la tranquilidad eh, el compartir y, y el estar con toda esta gente maravillosa que nos abrió las puertas y que nos dieron otra oportunidad en la vida Estoy acá porque lo que más me gusta es la paz y la tranquilidad que me brinda este lugar. Nada más. On peut difficilement être heureux si on sait que notre avenir n'est pas assuré. Et aujourd'hui, bah notre avenir n'est pas assuré. Notre civilisation menace de s'effondrer et d'entraîner avec elle le reste du vivant. Quand on sait ce que l'avenir nous réserve, oh, c'est facile de planifier sa vie. On sait qu'on fait un prêt pour acheter une maison, une voiture, on fait des études parce que dans 10 ans on aura un meilleur travail. Mais demain, ce monde dans lequel on a grandi, ce monde dans lequel nos parents et nos grands-parents ont vécu, eh bien il n'existera très certainement plus. Mais sortons quelques instants de cette vision anthropocentrée. Chaque jour, le système éradique 150 à 200 espèces animales et végétales. C'est une véritable guerre qui est menée contre la vie. Face à ce constat, une seule solution. Nous devons entrer en résistance et apprendre à déconstruire ce qui détruit la planète et en même temps à construire des alternatives qui nous rendront plus autonomes. Ça devient indispensable qu'on réapprenne à bâtir nos maisons, à produire notre énergie, à faire pousser notre alimentation et surtout à établir un véritable lien social et démocratique. C'est pour ça que la dynamique des éco-villages nous intéresse beaucoup. Bonjour à toutes et à tous et bienvenue sur Demos Kratos. Dans ce documentaire, on va partir à la rencontre de trois de ces éco-villages pour voir concrètement comment ils ont développé leur indépendance. Aujourd'hui, on part en quête d'autonomie.
Salut Julien Salut Johan Bienvenue à Pourgue Merci de nous accueillir Avant de s'installer dans l'Ariège en 2017 et de cofonder l'éco-village de Pourgue, Johan et d'autres habitants du lieu vivaient à Paris, où ils ont travaillé à l'école dynamique. Une école démocratique qui permet aux enfants d'apprendre à devenir responsables collectivement et à développer leur autonomie. Pendant deux ans euh, qu'on a travaillé à l'école dynamique, on offrait une liberté incroyable aux enfants et on voyait l'effet que ça faisait sur les enfants. Cette espèce d'impact extrêmement positif sur leur développement, sur l'exploration de qui ils étaient, la façon dont, dont ils arrivaient à prendre conscience, comment ils se considéraient face au regard des autres, etc. etc. Un développement social énorme. Et euh, nous, en tant qu'adultes et créateurs d'école, on n'y avait pas accès à ça. Et c'était un petit peu la... <rire> le petit grelot qu'on qui, 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 qu a envie de suivre mais qu'on n'atteint jamais. Et euh, est née en fait euh, l'idée de, de créer un éco-village et de se retrouver ensemble, explorer cette liberté entre adultes, enfants, entre, entre différents âges. Et six mois après, on était là. On n'est plus en compétition les uns avec les autres, mais on collabore et on se complète. Et ça, c'est quelque chose qu'on n'apprend pas à l'école euh, et dans la société actuelle. c'est pas une norme de, de venir euh, se compléter les uns les autres euh, dans nos compétences, dans, dans nos savoir-faire et dans, dans qui on est. Situé dans le Limousin, l'éco-hameau de Busset a vu le jour il y a environ 15 ans. Nicole fait partie des premières personnes à s'y être installées. Avant, j'étais en région parisienne et euh, j'étais assistante sociale. Je suis restée un petit temps d'abord euh, là-bas euh, pour voir si ça allait marcher ici et ensuite je suis venue euh, m'installer euh, complètement en 2005. Donc il y avait une, une vieille ferme avec des bâtiments annexes et on a construit quatre maisons neuves, on peut encore en construire une. Et on a fait la maison en commune qui va donc nous servir de, de lieu de, de vie collective puisque en fait on, on vit en semi-collectif. On a découvert des milieux très très différents. Déjà le milieu agricole qu'on ne connaissait absolument pas. Le milieu du bâtiment aussi, quand on a construit, c'était des découvertes très intéressantes. Donc l'effondrement, si tu veux, je pense que c'est euh, quelque chose qui, dont beaucoup de gens avaient conscience avant, qui a, qui a pris de l'ampleur parce que maintenant il y a des choses qui sont visibles. Et du coup, la, la société s'y intéresse et, et il est temps, il est grand temps. Maintenant qu'on n'est plus dans la ville, on se rend compte à quel point ça pouvait nous manquer. Quoi. Je pense que les, les îlots de verdure, c'est vraiment indispensable. Dans le Lot-et-Garonne, le projet de Terra a été initié en 2014. Thibault l'a rejoint il y a maintenant un an. Alors j'ai habité sur Bordeaux en fait, et sur la région bordelaise pendant environ 10 ans. J'ai mené un master en, en philosophie. Et donc c'est vrai qu'à la fin de mon, mon, mon mémoire, euh, j'avais un tout autre regard sur la, la violence et sur les, les causes de cette violence. Ce qui m'a amené à chercher non plus de, à, à être en contre, mais à être en pour, à voir ce qui se faisait et euh, ce que je pouvais apporter. Ou, ou mettre mon énergie, ou mettre mes, mes qualités euh, au service d'un projet qui, euh, qui fasse sens pour moi. Il y a deux ans, lorsque j'ai eu écho de Terra, c'est ce qui m'a saisi, c'est le fait de voir qu'à mes yeux, l'essentiel des, euh, des points clés 
euh, qu'implique qu cet effondrement étaient abordés et étaient aussi confrontés. Donc euh, aussi bien les questions d'alimentation, que d'énergie, que d'eau, que de, de politique, mais au sens société, sociétas, vivre ensemble étymologiquement. Euh, les questions d'économie qui souvent sont, sont délaissées en fait. On est ce qu'on fait, en fait. Et, euh, et on n'est pas forcément ce qu'on pense. On peut penser à beaucoup de choses. Moi, je, quand j'étais à Paris, euh, on parlait beaucoup aussi d'effondrement, de, de société qui va mal, etc. Et c'est un discours très négatif en fait, qu'on qu perçoit. Et euh, tant qu'on ne se met pas en action, en fait, tant qu'on ne va pas sur le terrain, tant qu'on ne décide pas de changer de vie, qu'on ne décide pas de, de, de passer du point A au point B, euh, on reste en fait coincé dans une espèce d'illusion de confort. Je ne dirais pas que l'objectif c'est de L'objectif c'est de tendre ce